The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. I believe there's much encouragement here in this chapter for us living in the year 2015 in a very morally dark time. And as Isaiah got his eyes off of King Uzziah, who was in office and died, God allowed him to see the true sovereign of the universe who was in control, that is Jehovah God. And pray that as God's people, we would get our eyes and realize that the hope is not found in the White House. It's found on the sovereign, the Lord Jesus Christ, who sits upon the throne and rules. Isaiah chapter number 6 will be our text tonight. Let's go ahead and stand as we read God's word together. Isaiah chapter 6 and verse number 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. Above it stood the seraphim. Each one had six wings. With twain he covered his face, and with twain he covered his feet, and with twain he did fly. And one cried unto another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the door moved at the voice of him that cried, and the house was filled with smoke. And then said I, Woe is me, for I am undone because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwelt in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then flew one of the seraphim unto me, having a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with the tongs from off the altar. And he laid it upon my mouth and said, Lo, this hath touched thy lips, and thine iniquity is taken away, and thy sin is purged. Also I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then said I, Here am I, send me. And he said, Go, and tell this people, Hear ye indeed, but understand not, and see ye indeed, but perceive not. Make the heart of this people fat, and make their ears heavy, and shut their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and convert, and be healed. Then said I, Lord, how long? And he answered, Until the cities be wasted without inhabitant, and the houses without man, and the land be utterly desolate. And the Lord have removed men far away, and there be a great forsaking in the midst of the land. But yet in it shall be a tenth, and it shall return, and shall be eaten as a teal tree, and as an oak, whose substance is in them, when they cast their leaves, so the holy seed shall be the sustenance thereof. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are grateful for this evening. Thank you for allowing us to gather, to sing songs of praise and worship to your great and holy name. Thank you, Father, for the privilege of prayer in which you have enabled us through the imputed righteousness of Christ to come before your throne of grace and mercy and to bring our petitions. 
Father, we pray as we have read your word, that you would speak to us, Lord, as your word is taught this evening, that we would be encouraged in this dark hour in our nation, and our nation to be faithful to you, Lord, to be a true light that shines upon a hill, that you'd help us, Lord, to shine the gospel light in this darkened time in earth's history. Help us, Lord, like Isaiah, that we would respond with willing hearts and be able to say, here am I, Lord, send me. Help us to be faithful, Lord, to your call to the Great Commission, to your call to faithfulness and holiness at this time. Thank you for your precious word. We pray that you would bless the teaching of it this night, for we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Isaiah ministers in a very dark time in Israel's history. The time is around 740 B.C. Judgment is about to fall upon the land, and indeed it ends up falling upon the northern kingdom. As God raises up the Assyrian Empire to bring the judgment and the discipline of God in 722 B.C. Around a little more than a hundred years later, God raises up the Babylonian Empire to bring the judgment of God upon the southern kingdom of Judah. But before that, Jehovah God charges the nation for rebelling against him. In fact, he calls them rebellious children in chapter number 1. He says they are corrupt. They have forsaken him. They are spiritually sick from the top of their head to the bottom of their feet. In fact, in chapter 1, he speaks about how religious ritual had become a substitute for the genuine worship of God in chapter number 1. Our Lord rebukes them for the fact that they go through the motions, but there is no hard attitude of love and worship of Almighty God. And before God calls Isaiah to the ministry in Isaiah chapter 6, we see in Isaiah chapter number 5 that there is a song which Isaiah composes. And this song expresses the love of God for the people of Israel called his vineyard under this metaphor in this song. In the first stanza in chapter 5, in verses 1 through 2, this song which Isaiah composed, sing about God's care for his vineyard. In chapter 5, in verses 3 through 6, in the second stanza, it gives the details of how God viewed her condition. And then in the third stanza, in verse 7, the vineyard is identified as the nation of Israel, like a vineyard that has been well taken care of by God. But instead of producing juicy grapes, and in Delano we're famous for grapes, so I should know a little bit about the passage. Instead of producing sweet grapes, they produce, the nation produced sour grapes. That is, instead of producing fruit, which is the evidence of genuine faith. They produce sour grapes, good-for-nothing works of the flesh. What do they produce? The vineyard of God. Well, in chapter 5, verses 8 through 10, he accuses the nation of covetousness. He indicts the greedy landowners who are defrauding the poor, who are doing everything for the dollar as they seize more and more land. As a result, God is going to judge them. And ten acres of grape vineyards will only produce six gallons of wine as a result of the judgment of God upon the covetous people of the nation. But not only do they produce the wild grape of covetousness during this dark time, 
but they were also a nation filled with substance abuse, namely drunkenness. Look at chapter 5 and verse 11. Woe unto them that rise up early in the morning, that they may follow strong drink, that they continue until night till wine inflame them. In other words, they don't even wait till the night time to party and get drunk. They rise up early in the morning, begin getting drunk in the morning time. These are people who are living to get drunk, living this wild lifestyle, and God's judgment is about to fall on them. Not only are they filled with this, the wild grapes of drunkenness and of substance abuse, but they're a nation that is full of apathy and carelessness. Look at verse number 18 of chapter 5. Woe unto them that draw iniquity with cords of vanity and sin as it were with a cart rope, that say, let him make speed and hasten his work that we may see it, and let the counsel of the Holy One of Israel draw nigh and come that we may know it. In other words, you speak of this judgment of God, well, bring it on. Let God bring His judgment to us. What is God going to do? They had no fear of God. They were full of apathy towards God, challenging God if God is really going to judge us. As a result of these wild grapes, they are getting darker and darker in the nation to where they begin to think with what we could call a good-for-nothing or a reprobate mindset, where they begin to call that which is evil good. And that which is good, they begin to call evil. Look at verse 20 of chapter 5. Woe unto them that call evil good and good evil, that put darkness for light and light for darkness, that put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe unto them that are wise in their own eyes and prudent in their own understanding. In other words, they, they have some deeper knowledge than God's truth, His Word. They have this knowledge that that which God condemns, it really is a beautiful lifestyle. That which God condemns as an abomination, it should be celebrated and not condemned. They're turning that which God calls evil and they call it good. That which God calls good, they call it evil. And this is the state among the professing people of God. They're getting darker and darker in their mindset. And this is the society, this is the context of, of Isaiah's call. He's not called to serve God among a nation that loves God, but among a nation that has turned his back upon the Lord. Another wild grape besides this deception is that of injustice in verses 22 through 25. The judges who are supposed to enforce the law are instead taking bribes and abusing the law. The very ones who should be protecting life are abusing people, are taking advantage. The job of the government, according to Romans 13, is to protect its citizens. But woe unto the government that would condone the killing of the most innocent in society, taking advantage of the most helpless in society. This is what is happening in Isaiah's day. 
God was serious about the nation's sins. God would bring judgment to this society that was getting darker and darker and thinking. Thinking. The nation actually thought they were getting wiser and wiser when God was giving them over to a reprobate mind. Now we see the same thing taking place in our country. If you would turn to Romans chapter 1, I think you see the beginnings of God's judgment upon our nation. Turn to Romans chapter 1 with me. And we see this dark background of what happens to societies that turn their back on God. And Romans chapter 1 is interesting because Paul is writing here in the book of Romans. And he begins by talking about, the, the, he talks about and focuses on the gospel. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation. To everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed. Now if a modern day American would write that passage, he would say the first thing the gospel reveals in the death of Christ for sinners is love. Paul says it's righteousness first. Yes, love. Certainly for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, but it also reveals the righteousness of God. For God is so righteous, he can't just forgive sin without someone paying the penalty for sinners. And in the gospel, in the death of Christ, he becomes a propitiation for the sin of God's people. He absorbs in himself the wrath of God. So in the gospel that Paul's not ashamed about, it reveals that God's God, His wrath has been appeased in the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is the basis on which He justifies sinful men. And before Paul gets to the work of Jesus, he spends over three chapters talking about the wickedness of men and why they need a Savior. It begins by talking about the wrath of God in verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth, literally continually suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which may, may, may be made known of God is manifest in them. For God has shown it unto them. They know of God. It's not that man can't find God. He knows God, the law of God, but he suppresses that truth in unrighteousness because it messes up his lifestyle of sin. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so they are without excuse. A man can look at a painting that's beautiful, and he realizes, wow, there must have been a brilliant painter. And yet man looks at the universe and at creation and says, wow, what a great accident. How could he think that? Creation testifies to the reality of a creator. Verse 21, because that when they knew God, they glorified Him not as God. Neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, their reasonings. Their foolish heart was dark. And remember, the heart is synonymous with the mind. The heart became darkened because they refused to acknowledge God. They turned to God, not to a position of neutrality. They turned from God unto vain reasoning, to a foolish mindset. Verse 22, professing themselves to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into the image like to corruptible man, birds, 
four-footed beasts and creeping things. Think of a society that would value the saving of a kangaroo rat over there in Delano. We have uh, North Kern State Prison and Kern Valley State Prison. And we have a special squad of people. They are officers. They're given a special assignment, sort of like CSI. And when a kangaroo rat kicks the bucket, this special squad of officers come out to give him, I, I was going to say a proper burial, that's probably not the term, but they go out there to make sure they pick him up in just the right way because he's an endangered species. So they make sure <clears throat> the kangaroo rat is treated with the utmost respect. And yet the highest officials of our land condone the butchering of children in the womb. When a society values creatures to such a point where they worship their animals and kill their children. This is a society where God's judgment is already rolling out upon it. Because of that, verse 24, wherefore, because of that, God also gave them up to uncleanness, to the lust of their own hearts, to dishonor their own bodies between themselves. Who change the truth of God into a lie and worship and serve the creature more than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. So, as a result of their turning from God and God's knowledge, God begins to judge them. And how does God judge them? By giving them over to their lust. And as when a society begins to openly promote sexual immorality and condone it as beautiful, that society's beginning to experience already the judgment of God as God is giving them over. From sexual revolution to homosexuality being uplifted and praised as beautiful, verse 26. For this cause, God, again, gave them up unto vile affections. For even the women did change the natural use into that which is against nature. And likewise also men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust one toward another, men with men working that which is unseemly, and receiving in themselves a recompense of their error which was meat. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which are not convenient. All of these are the result of God's judgment, God giving over a society under their sin. This is the society both we live in and Isaiah lived in in Isaiah chapter number 6. Now go back to Isaiah chapter number 6. Here's Isaiah. He's going to be called to the ministry by God. King Uzziah, a very successful king, ruled for 52 years. He brought great prosperity to the nation, specifically to the southern kingdom of Judah. But because of his pride, of course, he took the priest's office, though he wasn't a priest, and offered incense to God. And God struck him down in his pride and gave him leprosy. Uzziah now dies this king. The man who had brought great financial prosperity to the kingdom is now dead. The people are looking for a politician to rescue them. Not realizing that the answer is not found in a politician, it's found in the Lord their God. And as this time that God comes, in this dark time in Israel's history, that God comes to Isaiah. 
And we're going to learn some important lessons this evening. And what we learn from Isaiah is simply this. We need to, number one, see what Isaiah saw. See what Isaiah saw. What did he see? He saw God in all his glory. Not God as as he perceives him, sort of the AA version of God. You make God in your own image. I don't think so. Man is made in the image of God. You don't turn around the favor. God's in control. Isaiah sees God for who he is. We need to see what Isaiah saw, God in all his glory. Look at chapter 6 and verse number 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I also saw, I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. I remember back, boy, this was back when the first Bush was in office, and he lost re-election. I remember a relative of mine worked very hard to get him in office, and man, she was in such depression the next day. You would think Armageddon had taken place. And I saw, what happened? She says, man, Bush lost. What's going to happen to the nation? What's going to happen? Interesting, I, there was a, um, a missionary. He's uh, an African missionary, Ivory Coast, and he was at my church when a famous preacher died the day before. And he says, I don't understand you Americans. I was at a, a, a missionary conference And they said, Dr. So-and-so died. What are we going to do? And I said, what do you mean, man? We're going to preach the gospel. That's what we're going to do. God hasn't died. Though some well-known name in fundamentalism died. Who are you kidding? It is the year that King Uzziah died and everyone's depressed. Oh, what's going to happen? It is at this time that God reveals himself to Isaiah. And he says, I saw also the Lord. Adonai, the sovereign of the universe. And where is he? He's not in an office twirling his hands. Oh, what are we going to do? The Republicans are not in power. What are we going to do? He's sitting upon the throne, high and lifted up. And his train filled the temple. Isaiah sees God in all his sovereign glory. And in the New Testament, In John chapter 12, verse 41, John says what Isaiah saw was the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because Jesus is God. John 12, 41 says, These things said Isaiah when he saw his glory and spake of him that is of Jesus. Verse 2. And above it stood the seraphims. Each one had six wings. With twain, that is, with two, he covered his face. And with twain, he covered his feet. And with twain, he did fly. The seraphim here, a transliteration of the Hebrew word, probably means burden ones. They are literally filled with nuclear praise for God. They cover their faces... In the presence of Jehovah God because of his brilliance and glory. Almost to protect themselves from the glory of God, though the seraphim are not sinful creatures. Yet they have 
wings given to them for their protection as they look upon Jehovah God in all His glory. With another pair of wings, they cover their feet. Maybe it's an indication that they will only go to the places that God sends them. They only want to do the will of God and go where God wills for them to go. The third pair of wings, they fly to carry out the orders of the sovereign of the universe. These angels are living flames of pure praise to worship Jehovah God. They are sinless, yet they are humbled before God. As A.W. Tozer reminds us, he says, We must not think of God as highest in ascending order of beings, starting with a single cell, And going on up to the fish, to the bird, to the animal, to man, to an angel, to a cherub, to God. God is as high above an archangel as above a caterpillar. For the gulf that separates the archangel from the caterpillar is but finite. While the gulf between God and the archangel is infinite. Verse 3. And one cried unto another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. Here we see a threefold repetition of this attribute of God, of His holiness. To emphasize supreme, to emphasize complete, utter holiness. God's holiness is, the fact means that He is totally separate from sin. He is devoted to His own glory. God's glory fills the earth, as the psalmist said in Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth forth His handiwork. All of creation declares who God is. We, are inex- we can't escape from the reality of God. Verse 4. And the post of the door moved at the voice of him that cried, and the house was filled with smoke. I was going to say it's an earthquake, but it's not earth. It's a heaven quake. <laughs> These angels, when they worship God, it's not a holy, 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 Lord, 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 like some Baptist sing. I mean, they shout, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts that is Jehovah of the armies of heaven. And when they do that, Literally, heaven shakes with their praise. These are not angels that are little, fat, chubby babies that forgot their diapers in the nursery. These are powerful angels. I remember as a boy visiting my cousins in Michigan, and I had never been in a thunderstorm. I mean, Delano, boring weather, hot, 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 or foggy. That's all we have there. But when we were in Detroit, Michigan, Dearborn, it was summertime, and I remember I was asleep, and we're in the living room, my brother and I, and I had a dream that my cousin, my older cousin, around 18 or 19, junior, he's, I dreamt that he took one of those uh, plastic trash cans from the schools, and he was beating it. Boom, boom, boom. I thought, why is he beating it up? And I woke up, and it wasn't him beating up a trash can, it was the thunder outside. And the house was shaking and just shook all the windows. 
Man, it was so exciting. My brother thought we were going to die. I immediately opened the door. My brother and I walked out the door. We're yelling, whoa! We're just yelling. You know, we're 10, 10 and 12 years old. Wow, look at that. We can't believe it. My cousin yells from the, up, the, the, the second story, shut up! We were excited. We've never seen heard thunder like that. It was so majestic. This is what is going on. Isaiah's eyes need to be taken off the earthly king. Not, I'm not saying that as Christians we don't have a double citizenship. We do, both in heaven and on earth. And we do our best to promote the common good. We ought to do that. But remember, our hope ultimately is not in a political party. It's in the sovereign God of the universe. We need to see what Isaiah saw. And what is that? To have a biblical view of God. He's not a grandfather hoping to get his will done if you allow him. He is a sovereign God who doeth his will among the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say unto him, What doest thou? Nebuchadnezzar learned that the hard way in the book of Daniel. May we realize and see what Isaiah saw. What is that? God in all his glory. We need that today. We need to see what Isaiah saw. And secondly, we need to sense what Isaiah sensed. We need to sense what Isaiah sensed. And what was that? Our own need of cleansing of sin. Look at verse number 5. Then said I, Woe is me, for I am undone. Because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Jehovah of hosts. Isaiah feared that he would be consumed because he was in the presence of the purest of all Almighty God. The King. The King, the head of the armies of heaven. He pronounces a prophetic woe upon himself. It's not woe as in, you know, you step on a banana pill. Woe, almost fell. <laughs> it's woe as in, it's a way of, of uttering a denunciation, a judgment. But it's not just a judgment on those people. It's a judgment on himself. For he begins to sense his own uncleanness, his own need for cleansing of his own sin. He first had to become aware of his own sin and uncleanness before he could worship God and serve God appropriately. He said, I am a, a man of unclean lips. Jesus made it very clear that out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaketh. When he talks about unclean lips, he's referring to the fact that he has by nature a dirty heart, a sinful heart. Whereas God was holy, Isaiah and the Jewish people were unclean. They were not upright, impure in their conduct. Woe is me, literally, I am ruined. I am undone. I am doomed to die as an impure creature and standing in the presence of Almighty, Holy God. It is in seeing God, first and foremost, for who He really is. Then and only then can we recognize who we really are. Sinners in need of the saving grace of Almighty God. 
The vision of God and His holiness always creates a sense of our own unworthiness. We see that, for example, in Abraham. In Genesis chapter 18, as he speaking to these three visitors, and one of them is the Lord, two of the others are angels who go into Sodom and Gomorrah to rescue Lot. <clears throat> the Lord stands before Abraham and he pleads for God to spare the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. In the middle of pleading with the Lord, Abraham said, Behold, now I have taken upon me to speak unto the Lord, which am but dust and ashes. He didn't talk to the Lord and say, I'm talking to you because I am someone special and you should listen to me. He said, I'm but dust and ashes as he pleaded with the Lord, recognizing who he was. I think of Job. After he went through much suffering, he wanted some answers from God. So the Bible tells us in Job 38 that God came in the whirlwind. That's a tornado. God came to him in a tornado to speak to him and said, Gird up your loins like a man. Stand up. It's not so much me answering you. You're going to answer me, Job. And God asked Job 74 questions, and Job never answered one of them. Where were you, Job, when I created the behemoth? Where were you when I created Leviathan? Where were you when I created the stars and named them? Where were you? <clears throat> After God is done asking him questions, and, Isaiah, and Job got a right view of God, he replied in Job 42, verse 5, I have heard of thee by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye seeth thee. Wherefore, I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. He saw God rightly. I think of Mananoah, the father of Samson. When the angel of the Lord appeared to him and spoke to him, and he realized this is a, an appearance of God. And as God went up in a flame of fire after he offered sacrifice, Mananoah and his wife, he said to his wife, we shall surely die because we have seen God. Ezekiel, in Ezekiel chapter 1, when God appears to him in all his glory, Ezekiel says, when I saw it, I fell upon my face. He fell forward in awe. He didn't fall backwards, you know. He fell forward in awe before God because he was in the presence of God Almighty. This is what happened to Peter. Remember in Luke 5? As our Lord told them to go out and to cast the net to the other side of the boat, he had fished all night and caught nothing. And nevertheless, he humbled himself to obey the carpenter turned teacher, not fisherman. And he does it as he retrieves so many fishes, he can, the, the net begins to break. At that moment, he realizes who Christ is. And he goes to the shore, and when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me, for I'm a sinful man, O Lord. Until we see God and are confronted with our own condition before Him, we will remain a haughty and proud people. But when we come face to face to, with who He really is, it will produce in the people of God humility. It will produce confession of sin. Realizing that God is sovereign, He is King, He has the right to save, and He has the right to judge whomsoever He will. By the fact that He saved me by His grace, He made the difference, not me. 
There's a humility that God that produces, that comes out of that. When Isaiah came before God, he said, Woe is me! He didn't say, Woe is Steve! That wicked guy down the street. Man, I knew he deserves the judgment of God. Woe unto the Democrats! They're certainly worthy of some woe, but <laughs> we don't deny that. But it's woe is me. I'm the one who's undone. I deserve the judgment of God. I need to be cleansed of my own sin. Verse number 6. Then flew one of the seraphims unto me, having a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with the tongs from off the altar. Thank God that he doesn't just point out our sins. God also provides the means to cleanse us of our sins. With Isaiah, it was an angel that takes a live coal, most likely from the brazen altar in heaven. He brings it to purify his lips, that is, his heart. Ultimately, all sin is forgiven because of sacrifice. Fire in the Old Testament many times symbolizes the wrath of God, the holiness of God. Verse 7, And he laid it upon my mouth and said, Lo, this hath touched thy lips, and thy iniquity is taken away and thy sin is purged. Now every place of sacrifice in the Old Testament, every sacrifice pointed to and was a type of the ultimate sacrifice, where God's wrath would be completely satisfied in the person of Jesus Christ upon the altar of Calvary. It is there where God's wrath is satisfied. It is there, and because of the work of Christ, God can and does forgive sinners. We need, we need to sense what Isaiah sensed, our own personal need of cleansing. Thirdly, we need to not only sense what Isaiah sensed, but number three, we need to say what Isaiah said. We need to say what Isaiah said, and he was simply put, he said he's going to surrender to God's will. Here am I, Lord, send me. It's not, here am I, Lord, send the pastor, he needs more to do. It's so good when people send out the pastor. That's kind of common once in a while. Oh, yeah, there's a need over there. Man, I'm going to tell the pastor to go over there and go witness to him. Oh, man, there's problems with teens in our neighborhood. Man, the pastor needs to go over there and do something about it. Oh, it's not, he's not volunteering anybody else but himself. Look at verse number 8. Also I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? Then said I, here am I, send me. God seeks a volunteer. Who will go for us? God speaks in a plurality to intensify what is going on as the king and possibly a hint to the fact that the one God is three distinct persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. God gives confidence to do his bidding as God calls Isaiah. When the triune God asks the question, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Isaiah responds, Here am I. I will go. God has forgiven me. God has been merciful to me. He's been gracious to me. I will go. When people do not respond as readily as we 
as this, it is only a painful evidence that they've never seen nor sensed God. If we realize who God is, who we are, and what God has done for us to cleanse us from our sin through the sacrifice of Christ, how could the people of God not respond like Isaiah? How could we not have a desire to do the will of God? Verse 9. And he said, Go, tell this people, Hear ye indeed, but understand not. And see ye indeed, but perceive not. Make the heart of this people fat. And make their ears heavy and shut their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and convert and be healed. Now, there are people who object and they say, well, if God is sovereign and in control of everything, why evangelize if people don't have a chance to be saved? Well, let me tell you first and foremost why we should evangelize. It's pretty simple, doesn't it? You don't need a theological degree. Because God said so. That's it. God said so. All people got to have a chance. Chance nothing. God said so. God tells Isaiah, I want you to go and preach. And in preaching the word, my judicial judgment would cause men to get hardened in their sin. As God hardened Pharaoh, he will harden others. Isaiah could have responded, well, if people don't have a chance to get saved, God, then why go? Well, you go, Isaiah, because God said so. The results are not in Isaiah's hand. The results are in God's hand. But the responsibility to deliver the message, it is yours, it is mine. The responsibility to deliver the gospel is the people of God. The result of what God does with the gospel, that is His. My job is to be faithful, not necessarily successful. Our responsibility is to be faithful to preach the gospel. Our job is to faithfully deliver the truth, to live it, and to preach it. And it's God's job to make it successful according to His will. Verse 11, Then said I, Lord, how long? And He answered, Until the cities be wasted without inhabitant, and the houses without man, and the land be utterly desolate. And the Lord had removed men far away, and there be a great forsaken in the midst of the land. In other words, keep preaching until the judgment falls. It fell in the north in 722. Later on in 586 in the south. Keep on preaching until judgment falls. Keep at it. Keep at it until the judgment falls. Keep witnessing until the sinner dies. Keep going. Verse 13. But yet in it it shall be a tenth, and it shall return, and shall be eaten. In other words, there is going to be a remnant after judgment that God will bring back to the land. There will be a remnant that God will save. So when the gospel is preached, I preach it with full confidence, whether it is in, in church or whether it's calling men to repentance in prison. Who, Regardless of who's there, I know God will save a multitude of sinners. And the confidence in the sovereignty of God in proclaiming the gospel is the greatest encouragement in our dark hour. The fact that God is in control, not trying to be in control. The fact that He is sovereign ought to encourage us to be faithful. Why? Because even in the midst of judgment, God is still going to save a multitude of sinners. And here's Isaiah. God tells them to be faithful no matter what. The great commission is to us to stay faithful no matter what. Jesus Christ is our King. 
He came once to die upon a cross for our redemption. Very soon he's coming back to rule and reign and judge. His commission to us is to go and tell the world that he is a living, all-sufficient, sovereign Savior who died to save his people from their sins. Are we prepared to die to self, ease, and indifference in order to go and tell sinful men that Jesus saves perfectly? Only such a person has a burden and a passion to win the lost. Someone wrote, Mine are the hands to do the work. My feet shall run for thee. My lips shall sound the glorious news. Lord, here am I, send me. This is what Isaiah said. I pray that that is what everyone says tonight. Lord, here am I. What do you want me to do? Here am I, send me. Let's pray. Father in heaven, in this dark time in our nation's history, help us, O oh Lord, that the will and desire that Isaiah had to be used of you would be the desire of all of your people here at Berean Baptist Church. Help us, O oh God, that we would respond to your call to faithful obedience, faithfully sharing the gospel, trusting you for the results. Help us, Lord, that we would see what Isaiah saw, that we would see you in scriptures, in all your glory, recognizing who you are, the King that is in charge. Help us, O Lord, to sense what Isaiah sensed, our own sin and the greatness of your saving grace. And Lord, help us to say what Isaiah said. Here am I. Send me. Use me that my life would count for time and eternity. Lord, hear the prayer of your people tonight as we respond to the preaching of your word, that you would be glorified in this church and the people. For we ask and pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Ronert Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Ronert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.